Well, hey everyone, my name is Wes. I'm our pastor here and want to welcome you here. Thank you for joining us today. I love when Gil does highlights. I feel like it's like a news, like a TV announcer is doing something like, bye today. Anyway, um, so we are wrapping up a series of messages we started a couple weeks ago called Come Together, um, talking about how we can find uh, connection and fight isolation. That's kind of a big thing that our world is struggling with right now. And so uh, hopefully these messages have been helpful for you. Um, I'm actually, normally I have like a cutesy little story, but today I'm actually going to just kind of dive in and talk about the text we're going to look at. And uh, don't worry, my amazing cutesy stories will come later. I'm sure you're really excited about that. So um, we're going to look at just three Bible verses today. So if you're like, I'm not really a big Bible person, Wes, that's great. This is the message for you because uh, we're only going to look at three verses. So uh, we're going to look at this uh, three verses from this book called Romans. Uh, Romans is a letter written by a guy named Paul. Uh, he's a first century church leader. And uh, he was writing to a group of Christians in Rome. Now, you got to keep in mind, back in the first century, like churches didn't exist kind of like this. It was something that would meet in people's homes. And it was kind of you know, real low-key, kind of organic, grassroots kind of thing. And uh, a lot of people, like one of the kind of things that people talk about is, in like uh, all the letters that we have in our New Testament today, like why was this letter written? You know, because we're kind of reading half of a conversation when we read one of Paul's letters. And uh, Paul, when he wrote Romans, we're pretty sure the reason that he wrote Romans was to address uh, disconnection that existed in this church, okay? Uh, let me give you a little bit of a history lesson here. Uh, there was, and I think in the 40s AD, there was something called the Edict of Claudius, okay? Yeah, I'm, does anyone know what the Edict of Claudius is? I know you're probably like, oh yeah, I was just studying that. The, yeah, you were there before, you heard me talk about it. So uh, the Edict of Claudius was basically this edict that went out in the 40s AD uh, by a guy named Claudius, the emperor of Rome. And uh, Claudius said, hey, uh, we are going to ban Jews from Rome. They saw Jews as kind of like a threat to the Roman way of life. And so they basically kicked, if you were Jewish, you had to get the heck out of Rome. You weren't allowed there. That was right about the time that the message about Jesus was arriving in Rome. And so these churches were kind of forming in Rome without much of any sort of like Jewish presence, okay? They were formed by a bunch of Gentiles, which is like the fancy, you know, word for non-Jewish person, okay? And so this kind of happened for about a decade, 15 years, something like that. And then all of a sudden the edict was lifted. And now Jews could find their way back into Rome once again. And when Jews went back into Rome, they found not really a warm welcome uh, receiving them in these churches. And we're not sure if it was like, a, hey, these Gentile churches were open and welcoming toward people. But the Jewish people were like, well, you guys, I saw the bacon in your fridge right there. So we're not doing that. Or if it was kind of like, a, hey, uh, we actually, you know, don't really want you to be a part of this church, Jewish people. Like we're kind of pushing you away. Or maybe it was a little bit of both, right? We're not really sure what happened. But the point being, this church is living in a really disconnected state from one another. And that was a real big problem to Paul. Um, which is kind of side note, our church, right, we want to be a multi-ethnic gathering. We want to be a church that builds bridges where there are barriers. And this is one of the reasons why. Because like one of the books of the Bible, in fact, the book of the Bible that people kind of lift up is one of the most important books of the Bible. One of the most important theological works ever written was written precisely to address this issue of socioeconomic discrimination and racial discrimination within the church, right? To say like, hey, this is an issue that we, we need to nip it in the bud, right? So it's a good thing that we, Paul did that, and that's never a problem in churches today. We've got that all figured out. That was a joke. You can laugh at that. It's all right. Uh, anyway, but Paul writes this, and uh, 
in the process of writing this, he spends kind of the first half of this letter talking about, hey, here's what we believe about Jesus. And he's kind of basically trying to say, we're all one big happy family right here, guys. Like, we, we can get along with each other. And then he spends a few chapters, chapters 9 to 11, he talks about basically, okay, so here's kind of how our belief in Jesus makes us one happy family, kind of theologically, how this works and how this kind of works together with God. Then in chapter 12, he starts to talk about, okay, so we know all of this is true in terms of like what we believe. But now let's talk about what we, like how we behave. Like how do we actually live this out? How do we actually practice this? How do we actually do this with skin on, essentially? And I want to talk to you about that. And that's where Romans 12 kind of begins this transition for him. And so we're going to read, again, just three little verses here. Romans 12, verse 14, Paul writes, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now, I want to start and just camp out here for a brief moment to say this verse in verse 15 and verse 16, the three verses we're going to look at today, we can't see this in our English text, but in the original Greek text that the, the letter to the Romans was written in, this is all one big run-on sentence. So this is one sentence. And this whole thing, bless those who persecute you, the way that that's constructed in the Greek language of this letter is constructed to say this is kind of the command everything else hangs on. So everything else Paul is going to write after this is basically just an extension, a continuation of this is what it means to bless those, uh, bless those who persecute you, to bless and not curse them, right? So the understanding here is, guys, this is going to be difficult because this isn't going to be a tit-for-tat kind of thing. This isn't going to be, oh yeah, I'm really nice to people who are already nice to me. Nope, this is actually, I'm actually going to be kind and compassionate and loving to people where there's some baggage attached, where there's some history attached, where there's some challenges attached to what I am being asked to do here. That's why I'm writing this to you. And then Paul gives us our golden rule of connection in the next verse. Here's what he says. He says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Okay? Uh, a guy named John Ortberg, he's a psychologist who later became a pastor. He wrote this book I'm reading right now called I'd like you a lot more if you were more like me, which I'm like, yeah, that's true. I would like people more if they were like me. Uh, probably really psychologically revealing statement I just made right there. Anyway, uh, but he writes and he calls this the golden rule of connection, that we would rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And basically put, the golden rule of connection is emotional empathy, so kind of meeting you where you are emotionally, equals or produces constructive connection. Every time you and I choose to kind of place ourselves in someone else's shoes emotionally, we have just produced a constructive connection with that other person. That's how, or at least part of how, connection works. Now, in his book, John Ortberg tells a story about a time, he's in California, and he tells a story about a time when he got called uh, to a jury summons for the San Mateo County uh, county court. Okay. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe you're like a deeply patriotic person when you get a jury summons. When I get a jury summons, immediately I'm like, oh my gosh, 
gosh, how can I get out of this, right? I was on sabbatical last fall, and like the second week of sabbatical, I got a Leon County jury summons. I was like, come on, Leon, like, don't you know I'm on sabbatical? I can't be bothered with this, right, you know, or whatever, right, you know? And so I, then I called, and I didn't have to go, so I was like, God rewards the righteous, you know, right there. Anyway, um, so, but he got called, and because he's not as great a Christian as I am, he had to go serve that day, and so he walks in, and like, if you've ever done jury duty, you know how it goes, right? They usher you into this big room with a bunch of other people who don't want to be there and hate the fact that they're taking time off work to be there, right? And so people got their books, and they're reading their books, and slouching in their seats, and drinking the crappy coffee, and all this kind of stuff. And then a guy named Larry walks into the room. Now, John Orberg says, I don't know what they're paying Larry, but whatever it is, it is not enough because they need to increase this. Because Larry walks in, and Larry understands the golden rule of connection. And Larry walks in, and he immediately begins with kind of like, hey, guys, let's, let's, let's all be real here. No one wants to be here right now, right? Like, raise your hand if you're really excited about jury duty, right? You know? And he's kind of meeting the people where they are. And then Larry starts to launch into this, like, impassioned, like, but what you're doing here today is, is the cornerstone of our justice system. People have died fighting for this right. People in other countries across the world are dying for this basic right. You know, like, he's, he like, he's like this, the most well-trained civics teacher in the entire world, right? He's just, like, going on to, like, this is why jury duty is important. You know, yeah. He tells a story about a 94-year-old woman who couldn't call in to find out if she had to do jury duty because she had a rotary phone, okay? So, like, you know, I'll just, if you don't know what that is, you know, just look it up later, but like she couldn't do like the dial-up system, so she took not one bus, not two bus, but three county buses to get to the courthouse just to check in to see if she had to do jury duty that day because this was so meaningful to her and so important to her. And John Orberg says, man, by the time Larry was done, now jury duty wasn't something I had to do. It was something I got to do, you know, like I, I, what a privilege, right? And you look around and people's books are sat down, you know, the Nora Roberts novel are now under the chair now and people are like sitting up a little bit straighter right now and now they're like you know they're kind of like you know gladly getting in line and doing all this stuff you gotta do because Larry understood the emotional rule of connection he met people where they were so he could lead them to someplace different now when we read rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn like I don't know about you to me that feels really stark like like mourning is uh, like I don't mourn a whole lot like oh no they forgot my soy sauce and my order you know or whatever right like I don't mourn a lot of things okay but my my kind of posturing to you would be every day you and I have occasions for rejoicing and mourning and they don't have to be these like life-changing events okay they can be different stuff so like you know when you go home from work or school and despite the fact you live in Tallahassee, the city with the worst time traffic lights in the entire nation of the United States of America, you caught all greens on the way home from work and you are rejoi- Oh, yes, yes, yes. Or like me last night when our family got takeout from our favorite Chinese spot and somehow I hit every single red light on Capitol Circle, on Blairstone, on streets that I didn't even know existed before until I stopped at the red light there. And all the while, like, I'm smelling my wonderful fried rice or whatever I got in the back seat, right? Getting cold with each passing second, right? That's a morning, okay? Uh, 
cool person alert right here yesterday on Pokemon Go. I caught all three legendary Pokemon that were available. So that's a really big, you know, happy. Hey, yeah, thank you, Brian. Thank you for appreciate. Yeah, no, it doesn't count now. You didn't, you didn't join me, okay? It's okay. You're still learning, okay? That, that's rejoicing right there, right? Morning is earlier this week when I got home from work and I looked at the black polo shirt I was wearing and realized that when I put on said polo shirt, I got like the deodorant streaks all down the side of it. So I had nice white streaks like a real slob freak show all day. As I And of course, the one day I had meetings with people was the day I wore my black polo shirt, right? So that worked really, really great, okay? These are rejoicing things. These are mourning things, right? These don't have to be like, oh my gosh, this terrible, awful tragedy overcame me or something like that, right? It's the stuff of life. And think about it. When something good happens to you and you share it with some, someone, what do you want that someone to do? You want them to be like, oh my gosh, that's so amazing, right? Even when they, they know and you know it's not actually that amazing, right? But like they're happy with you. They're rejoicing with you. Or like when there's like the, oh my gosh, you're not going to believe this. I was in the right turn lane. There was one, one car in front of me. And even though the car could have turned right for like 20 seconds, they just sat there and sat there and sat there and sat, you know, whatever, right? And like, what do you want? You want people to go, oh my gosh, that is the worst injustice I have ever heard in all of life right there. That is, that is the most terrible thing, right? Because that's the golden rule of connection. That's how connection works. And when we, when we will enter into that, we will find our relationships become better as a result, okay? Finishing up, next verse. Paul understands, though, as easy as that sounds, there are going to be challenges. And so what does he say? He says, I want you to live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Now, the reason I've highlighted these two things for us here is because in the span of just a couple of words, Paul basically says the same thing. Hey, don't be proud. Be willing to get off your high horse and associate with people that you might see as lower than you, okay? And don't be conceited, right? Which is basically don't be proud again, right? Because Paul recognizes that the challenge for us for the golden rule of connection and connecting well with other people, the challenge that we're going to face that gets in the way of that all the time is our ego. Our ego is one of our greatest barriers in connection, being willing to think less of myself and more of someone else. This is what we talked about in week one, right? That connection starts with you, not me. Connection starts when I'm willing to see life from your perspective and think of you in this relationship first, not just thinking about me and my wants and my wishes and my desires first. Now, our ego comes into play in this in a number of ways, right? When it comes to empathy, right? Sometimes our ego is just, I need to not be so self-absorbed in whatever it is I'm doing at the moment right? Maybe my, my ego can get in the way because my wife is trying to share something with me, but I'm more interested in what Facebook is trying to share with me right now, which of course is always of prime importance, you know, and all that kind of stuff, right? Maybe my ego gets in the way in the sense of like, hey, you're trying to share this information with me, and right now I'm kind of trying to share in the joy of this uh, basketball game I'm watching right now, you know, and the nets are on, and I'm trying to, you know, I'm kind of rooting, you know, for this Oh, James Hart. Well, I guess not James Hart anymore. Anyway, that's another sermon for another time. Anyway, but like that kind of thing, right? I'm willing to set aside what I'm doing. Sometimes our ego is a barrier in the sense of like, I'm kind of wrapped up in my emotions. I'm kind of feeling myself a little bit too much, right? And I actually need to be willing to kind of set aside for a moment my emotions about a thing, my thoughts on a thing, not forever, 
but just temporarily so I can connect and kind of be present with and engage with you and kind of give you the, 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 the reception that you deserve, right? Because, because you are what's important here. It's kind of crazy to me that in life, when we get to our funeral, right, we all know the most important thing in our life is going to be the impact that we left on other people and like the love that we shared with other people, you know, like we all understand that when our funeral comes around, right, people aren't going to go, man, you know what's so great about Wes? Wes had so much stuff, you know, like that's not what people are going to say. But yet, knowing that, and kind of having a lot of acknowledgement about that, the biggest fight we have is every day of our lives up until that point to actually value people in front of us like they really truly are the most important thing. And that's the battle Paul is saying that we need to wage if we want to connect well with others. Okay, so how do we do that? Like how do we actually put this into motion? So glad you asked. I have four suggestions for you here today. First one's the biggest one, so I apologize. There's a lot of text on the screen. One of the ways we can grow at this golden rule is that we need to get comfortable discarding our culture's exceptions of how we conduct ourselves emotionally, okay? Here's what I mean by that. When Paul wrote these words, he wrote to this Greco-Roman culture that was steeped in Stoicism, okay? Stoicism is where we get our word stoic, right? Stoicism was a philosophy that basically said, hey, the meaning of life, the way to get the most out of life is you just need to kind of be even keel, don't get too high, don't get too low. Like the goal is just to kind of detach yourself from the world all the time, right? And very specifically for Mediterranean, for Greco-Roman men, this was kind of the thing that, that was kind of prescribed to them. When Paul says, you need to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, like, that's not Stoicism. That's, in fact, quite opposite from Stoicism. And so what this should show us is, like, God is not afraid to critique our culture. God is not afraid to critique kind of our way, my way of doing things when it doesn't serve what is actually beneficial and good for me, okay? I kind of came up with three areas where I feel like this is a real challenge and a real fight for us, okay? Um, the first one is crying, okay? So like, I'll just talk to the men, right? Like, okay, God gave us tear ducts for a reason. We need to learn how to like allow ourselves to feel them and use them. And like, that doesn't make me less of a man or something like that, right? Like I know all of us for our whole entire lives were fed kind of line of like, well, boys don't cry, gotta be tough, right? The image of like rugged masculinity, it's like the Lone Ranger, right? It's the Marlboro Man, you know, like some, some guy out on the Western frontier, you know, dismounting his steed and surveying the country around him as he smokes his, you know, camel or whatever he's doing, okay? Like, I'm just here to remind you, those things are actually fictional characters, right? Like they don't exist. Like the Lone Ranger actually wasn't a real person, right? The Marlboro Man, aside from like the guy who's like in the ads or whatever back in the 50s or whenever, you know, like he's not a real person. Also, he was created at the time when we were like, smoking isn't a problem, that's good for you. You should, you're right, like on Mad Men when they're like smoking all the time, you know? And so like we should just not be afraid to discard that. Right, every emotion in our, in our soul, right, like those should be indicators of something. And oftentimes when I, when I engage in suppression of what I'm experiencing on the inside, what that ends up leading to is depression, right? And I'm case in point for that. I've seen that happen in my life, right? And so one of the things that guys, just, I, I mean all of us, right, but I think men in particular, we need to get comfortable with saying, hey, my tears are not a sign of weakness. They're a sign that I'm feeling and engaging with 
my life. Here, here's the second area where I feel like our culture doesn't help us in this, is in celebration. Okay, so uh, celebrating is kind of like hard for us to do because we're really cynical all the time. I won't speak for you. I'll speak for me. I'm really cynical all the time. And so like even when good things happen in my life, I'm still waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like I'm still waiting for something to go wrong. Like yeah, I know, I know, honey, I know we just got this house now, but just wait. I'm sure there's a, I'm sure there's a mine that's buried in the front yard, you know, and we're going to step on it and the whole thing's going to blow and our home insurance is not going to cover it, you know, like the guy on the farmer's insurance commercial, right? Yeah. Like I can find, I, one of my spiritual gifts is I can find the negative in any positive situation. I pride myself on that, right? That's cynicism, ladies and gentlemen. And there are a billion reasons why we should be cynical, right? Like, our politics is cynical. The way our world works is cynical. We've all had the experience of hoping for something and we see it taken away like, and that makes us hardened and a little, I understand, okay? And I'm not here to tell you that you shouldn't be, you know, like a little kind of, hey, let's wait and see here on stuff at different points in your life. But here's why I am here to tell you. You and your soul was not created to live in a constant sense of, of alertness and wariness of everything. When I was on sabbatical last fall, I read this book called Didn't See It Coming. It was a guy talking about some pitfalls that he had kind of encountered over the course of his career that basically led him into a nervous breakdown. And he's kind of talking about these seven particular pitfalls. And one of the pitfalls was cynicism. And he wrote this line in the book that was so good that when I read it, like I was the only one in the room, but when I read it, I actually said out loud, I was like, wow, that's good. You know, like, which I was like, wow, that was like... You know, it's like when you text LOL, but you actually laugh, you know, when you say, you know, like, I was like, man, this is a really big deal. And he wrote this line, and it was simply, wariness begets weariness. I thought, man, that is so true. If we live our lives on high alert all the time, we are bound to get weary. And I don't know about you, when I get weary, I do not make good decisions. I do not experience the joys of life. You know, like, there's a lot of bad things that happen when I get weary a lot. Celebration is one of the ways that we let go of that weariness and we allow ourselves to experience the joy of the world God created. If you kind of think of your emotions as kind of like a fuel tank, right? Cynicism kind of, it's just a slow drain on that fuel tank. Celebration is one of the things that helps us fill it back up again. Here's a third kind of area where I think that we can move on and uh, kind of discard kind of our culture's understandings is that we just need to embrace cultures that are different than ours, okay? We live here in, in what is called the West, right? The Western world, right? And the fact about the West is the West is largely shaped by mostly Eurocentric, white understandings of the world. Now, here's why this is really important. If you look in what we call westernized cultures, what you're going to see about our emotional health in westernized cultures is it's not doing too good right now. Um, in fact, depression's on the rise, anxiety's on the rise, and you know, all this kind of isolation is on the rise, and we talked about that as we opened up this series, right? Now, I'm not here to say everything of our culture is terrible or bad or whatever, okay? There are some good things about, you know, our Western culture, however you want to think about that. But one of the things that is not good for, apparently, is our emotional health, because these rises and all these kind of bad outcomes are not mirrored in other cultures around the world the way that they are in ours, which if we want to approach our culture with any level of humility should cause us to go, huh, 
wonder if we can learn from some other people, you know, about maybe some things in our world that don't work the way that they should. Um, in the Bible, when Moses, the great leader of Israel, dies, Israel actually stops and they take 40 days to mourn the loss of the leader of their nation. And I love what this guy named Pete Scazzaro says. He says, the first time I read about Israel stopping for 40 days to uh, mourn the loss of their leader, I thought, man, that's really stupid. <laughs> like, what are you, like, come on, okay, like a day or two I get, but like, we got stuff to do here, people. Like 40 days, that feels really obsessive. And then he said, they had a nervous breakdown. And they said, after I had a nervous breakdown, and I kind of got to a healthier place on the other side of that, then I realized there's a lot of wisdom in what Israel used to do back then. Like, maybe if I would kind of give myself that same space to grieve the losses in my own life, I would be a little bit healthier today, right? Um, I would tell you one of the ways in which God has shaped my life so importantly is that I'm a white guy and my wife is black. And unsurprisingly, our families look at life a little bit differently, um, you know, from each other. And one of the really valuable things about the first like three years or so of our relationship when we were together, we were together around her family. My family lived a couple hours away. And I learned so much from her family. Like they have such a different way of just kind of doing life than my family does. Sometimes we would both be like, yeah, that's kind of wacky. That's kind of weird. That's kind of strange, right? But there are a lot of other things where I go, that's really smart. You know, like that, like the sense of community there is, the sense of inclusion that like there's so many really good things about the way my wife's family does life that I, I feel like are good for me to incorporate and learn from. And in fact, it's good for kind of all of us to learn from all kinds of different cultures, right? Whether it's, you know, Latino or African or whatever, right? Like, like we haven't cornered the market on what it means to have this kind of emotionally healthy culture. In fact, we're probably lagging behind in a lot of metrics in that in the West. And so, hey, let's be open to saying, hey, we can actually learn from other cultures. We can actually embrace what is good. We can kind of, you know, like the old saying, we can spit out the bones, but keep, you know, the rest of it, right? And we can kind of, kind of grow into being these people who connect well, like I think Paul was trying to write 2,000 years ago to his audience, and I think God is still trying to speak into us and into our lives today, okay? I promise the last three points are not going to be nearly that long. I apologize. Thank you. I'll get off my soapbox now. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Uh, anyway, second point. Uh, we have to get comfortable with God. And this is simply an acknowledgement on my part that I've found in my life that when I get comfortable with God, it's a lot easier for me to kind of be open and comfortable and working with others. Um, when we don't hold back with God, it becomes a lot easier for us to live in a more connected way, at least for me, with other people. I feel like one of the things I kind of talk about a lot for us is the biggest Bible in the book is, uh, biggest Bible in the book, the biggest book in the Bible, that is, is the book of Psalms. Psalms has 150 chapters. There are 150 prayers, songs, you know, whatever kind of to God, okay? The biggest category of Psalms that we have are called Psalms of Lament. I believe it's 60% of those Psalms. So like 80 some of those Psalms are Psalms of Lament. And like basically Psalms of Lament are Psalms that go, you know, WTF, God, like what's going on here? Like that's essentially the theme of those Psalms, right? And so, like, first off, I think it should just tell us something that when God gives us a prayer book, he makes sure that the most, like, the largest grouping of prayers are the prayers that are like, God, like, what are you doing, man? Like, I'm not sure right now, okay? I just think that should be informative for how we interact with God. But what, what I, like, I try to say this all the time, these psalms encourage us to be as honest as we can be with God, to not hold back 
And God is not dishonored by that. God is incredibly honored by that. Um, I'm just going to read you an excerpt of one. I thought about not sharing this because it's kind of harsh, but you'll see. Anyway, Psalm 137. So just to give you the context of the psalm, Israel uh, had been carted off into exile by the Babylonians. So like that's hard for us as Americans to imagine because like there's never really been a point in our history aside from like watching The Handmaid's Tale where we were like, oh, we were taken over by another country, right? So like just imagine for a moment, right? Like our, like we've been taken, like Canada, you know, all of a sudden didn't go sorry, you know, all the time and they like invaded us, you know, okay? So the Israelites had gotten invaded. They gotten carted off to Babylon. Babylon was so pumped about this. They like burned down the city. They would slaughter parents in front of their children. They would slaughter children in front of the parents. And then you could kill the parents too. They burned the temple down. They spat on the temple. They desecrated all the religious relics, right? Like they did stuff that all of us would go, whoa, that is not cool, guy. Like, you know, aside from the war thing, you know, like that is not cool, dude. And so this psalm is written in response, basically is kind of a collective cry for the nation from what they had experienced. And here's what it says. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites, that's Babylon, what they did the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. And the next verse, they say, Daughter Babylon, you are doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Which right now doesn't feel too violent, right? It feels like a Taylor Swift song or something like that. But then they say, happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Now, you can say a lot about that line from the, the word of the Lord. Uh, you can say a lot about that line of scripture. But one of the things you cannot say about that line of scripture is it's not honest. Because that is real. And here's what's interesting. God, after this line, God just goes, whoa, uh, you have an anger problem right now. And what God doesn't say is, well, I was interested in being your God, like, before the anger, but now, like, after it, you know, not so sure, right? Here's what we should also notice about God. God apparently did not feel any sort of need on Israel's part to do any infant dashing, okay, right? Like, God does what we want a good friend to do, like when you're going through a breakup, right? Like, and you say all those things that you know in retrospect are like stupid and, you know, whatever. And like, what does a good friend do? A good friend doesn't go, well, actually, I don't really think that's the ethic you want to use and you're whatever, right? What does a good friend do? They go, yeah, you're right. Here's some ice cream, you know, like that's what they do, right? And they, they, they help you out with that, okay? And I think God does the same thing, right? He hears our anger. He hears our frustration, right? And he doesn't feel compelled to act on it. He doesn't feel compelled to do what I ask him to do because I ask him to do it, right? Because he's God and I'm not, right? But what God is saying is, hey, it's okay for you to be honest with how you feel even when that honesty doesn't fit into the bounds of what is like socially acceptable, right? Even to the point of like what frankly to me is a really disconcerting verse in the Bible, right? Like God, God I think, allows that psalm in the Bible because he's trying to get across to us, his people, this very point. It's okay to get real, and it's okay when getting real gets ugly, okay? And the more comfortable I get with being comfortable with God, I believe that is kind of a training ground for me to learn not just how to connect with God, but how to connect with other people. Here's a third thing. I think we can grow at the golden rule of connection when we practice what I call the spiritual discipline of embarrassment, Okay? Here's what the spiritual discipline of embarrassment is. This is something I came up with after my sabbatical. Anytime I'm in like a conversation with someone or like talking about something and I have an opportunity 
to kind of share something about myself that I would otherwise like to keep concealed and quiet because it feels kind of embarrassing. I'm just going to force myself to share it. Now, you have to be a little discerning, right? This doesn't mean like, you know, when I go to McDonald's and I pick up my coffee and they're like, hey, how you doing? Well, last night I had this dream or whatever, right? Like you got to be a little discerning. So like you got to, you know, do that. But whenever I'm talking to a friend, I have an opportunity to kind of go a little bit deep. I'm, for, I'm trying to force myself to do that, right? So like this last week, someone like emailed me, uh, this organization our church is a part of, emailed, and they were asking for like some key metrics from our church. And like I wasn't really impressed with the key metrics. And then like someone was asking for me to share said key metrics. And so everything within my soul wanted to just add a zero, you know, or like, you know, make this a little more impressive, you know, or whatever. And I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to share the cold, hard facts of like, yep, this didn't go too well, right? And just kind of put that out there. Because for me, that was an opportunity to kind of practice the spiritual discipline of embarrassment. Now, for me, this is really key because maybe you don't have this problem. Maybe this is just me. I feel this kind of internal need that I have to make everything okay all the time. You know, like I have to be like, I can't like, I don't want to be like asking you to like care for me or anything. You know, like I don't know. That sounds really like a sociopath as I say this out loud. But like I don't want to have to like burden you with anything, right? And so like I just kind of withhold all that information. And the problem is when I like rejoicing with those who rejoice and mourning with those who mourn, that presumes I'm letting you in on the things you can rejoice and mourn with me on. And so one of the reasons I kind of realize why I feel disconnected a lot in my life is because I'm kind of withholding the very opportunities and mechanisms that are needed and necessary for me to connect with others. Does that make sense, you know? It's kind of like if you were like playing a game of basketball and it's like, well, uh, Wes, you were zero for zero from the field. Be like, yep, 100%, you know, right there, right? Well, like, yeah, okay, but that's probably not actually very helpful, right? Like we can't just have five players out on the court that never shoot, you know, that's gonna be a real, that's gonna be a really boring basketball game, right? And so when I practice the spiritual discipline of embarrassment, for me, that's kind of a way to, at least on one side of the equation, to kind of open up to say, okay, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open up to an opportunity to be connected here. And surprisingly, as I do that, people aren't like, whoa, what a giant freak, you know? People are like, thank you for sharing, or people are kind, or people are empathetic, you know? Like, that's good. So final suggestion here, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, we need to spend time with joy-filled people and learn from them, okay? Here's what joy is not. Joy is not a synonym for happy, okay? Joy is this understanding it, that God is in control of my life and everything I experience either came directly from his hand or it was allowed to pass through his hand onto me and as it does so, I can rest confident in the assurance that, hey, you know what? A good and loving God is in control. And so I, I can, I'm good. I, I'm fine. I, like, I don't need to worry. I don't need to stress. Like, I, I'm good. And a lot of times that might look like happiness. Sometimes it's just kind of like a settledness, right, about things. Joyful people are really grateful because they've kind of trained themselves to look at life that way, okay? But Here's the thing, when I want to grow in something, usually it helps me to be around people who are good at the thing I want to grow in, right? The most helpful part of my college experience 
experience was the internship. Because the internship was actually where I took the stuff I was learning in a classroom and I hung out with someone who was actually putting it into practice on the regular. And it helped me to grow in, in kind of in those skills, right? In the same way, being around joy-filled people is one of the things that can grow joy inside of us. Here's a really great thing. We tend to think people are like joyful or not joyful, right? And we're like, well, I'm just a not joyful person. And that's wrong, okay? The fruit of the Spirit, one of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. And what that means is the fruit of the Spirit, right? They can be, with God's help, cultivated in our lives, right? They can actually be grown just like actual fruit, right? And so what that means is I'm not not a joyful person. I'm just not a joyful person yet. But I can grow. I can learn. I can be changed. And as I will yield myself to God's desire for me, I can see the change that I, in fact, desire. Connection is the stuff of life, okay? We said from week one of this series, the great thing and the scary thing about relationships is how all-encompassing they are on our experience of life. When my relationships are bad, everything else in my life can be awesome. I can get a super huge raise and all this stuff, right? But my life still feels like it sucks because my relationships suck. And vice versa, we've been in situations where life was not going well. But I had a couple key relationships in my path that were, and that was everything for me, right? Because relationships are what life is all about. And so if we will yield ourselves to God's pattern of connection, what we can experience is over time, with his help, more fulfillment in our relationships. We can be formed into people who are connected in love. The reason God gave us the church, in part at least, is because he knew we couldn't do this alone. We need a community of others around us. If we will yield to God's pattern, we can see him use these skills to grow us deeper with others. I want to pray for that for us as we close today. Heavenly Father, I pray for the people in this room. I pray for those listening and watching online. God, I pray and ask for you to be at work in our relationships, in our connections, in our engagement with one another. Father God, would you teach us how to mourn with those who mourn, how to rejoice with those who rejoice. Place us within environments, within context, Lord, where we can put this into practice, where we can engage with this in meaningful ways. And Father, where we can grow more connected to one another and more connected to you. Father, we ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. As we normally do here, uh, we'll post this message online and we'll have some questions attached. I'll read through them here right now for you and feel free to use these around your dinner table in a small group, community group discussion, wherever. Uh, But just three questions for you to think about this week. So number one, do you find it easy to empathize with others or is that a struggle for you? And why do you think that is? Second question, what are some barriers that you find getting in the way of being able to empathize with others well? So, hey, I'd like to mourn with those who mourn. I'd like to rejoice with those who rejoice. But for some reason, I always kind of find this thing hanging me up, getting in the way, right? Maybe that's a good thing for you to talk about. And question three for us to think about. Do you consider yourself a joyful person? And what are ways that you think you could become more 
joyful. If we will have this vision and intention to be a more joyful person, I do believe God will present to us the means available for that. So this is a great way for us to talk about that. I want to encourage you to go ahead and stand up. Johnny and Bree are going to lead us in one last song together, and uh, then we'll hop out of here.